Hello, everyone, and welcome to the American Blue Economy podcast. I'm your host, Admiral Tim Gallaudet. I'm the CEO of Ocean STL Consulting and the former Deputy Administrator of the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration, or NOAA, as well as a former Assistant Secretary of Commerce. Before that, I was the Oceanographer of the Navy. We're a monthly offering by the American Shoreline Podcast Network and brought to you by Coastal News Today. The American Blue Economy podcast brings together leading voices in the ocean, coastal, and Great Lakes-based economies to expand awareness and collaboration, identify positive solutions to address the many challenges to the ocean economy, such as conflicting uses and climate change, and provide thought leadership to support our post-pandemic national recovery. And for today's show, it's a special episode in which we have the honor of interviewing the world-renowned ocean explorer, Dr. Robert Ballard, who will discuss his latest book, Into the Deep, a memoir by the man who discovered the Titanic. The book is published by National Geographic, and I read this book while I was on vacation uh, two weeks ago while I was in the Caribbean, and I finished it in two days, cover to cover. I could not put it down. It is a page turner, it's exceptionally well written, and it is an adventure tale of ocean technology and discovery like none other. And we're gonna discuss uh, during the next episode in two weeks, the topic of ocean exploration and mapping. And it's a very timely topic with this as a key scene setter uh, by the man who, who really opened this field uh, to so many across the country. And it's a big blue economy topic because mapping, for example, supports fisheries and wind energy development and marine transportation. And exploration supports conservation for fish habitat, the discovery of critical minerals, energy, and the many blue tech spin-offs that support the offshore industry. So to introduce our guests, let me share a really quick sea story from my career. And it was the very beginning of my career at the US Naval Academy. And it was 1986, I was a sophomore, or junior, was sophomore, pardon me, and Dr. Bob Ballard had just discovered the HMS Titanic and the shipwreck up in the North Atlantic. And he came to the Naval Academy to give a lecture to the entire student body that we called the Brigade of Midshipmen on this discovery and the cutting edge technology that he developed and used to find it. And I tell you, when I saw that presentation, I was enamored and I was hooked. And that set me on my path to become a naval oceanographer, uh, which Dr. Ballard was. And he's done this to countless ocean professionals throughout his career, inspiring them to follow in his wake. And since then, I have sailed on Bob's current exploration vessel, the exploration vessel Nautilus. I hosted him at a Navy dining out dinner when I was the oceanographer of the Navy. And Bob, you'll be happy to know I'm not going to talk about any of the exploits during that evening. And I joined him with several congressmen and senators to secure funding for ocean technology and STEM education. And I proudly launched last year the National Strategy for Ocean Mapping, Exploration, and Characterization, something that Bob has an advocate for years, and he details in this book. So, Bob, welcome, and thank you so much for being here. It's a pleasure. It's so great. Can't wait to get you back on the Nautilus. You won't recognize it from the last time you were aboard. Well, I had such a blast. We were diving on the USS Independence in the Greater Fairlands National Marine Sanctuary, and, and that was a really just terrific experience. But Bob, let's let's talk about you. And uh, first off, just generally, uh, I've read many of your National Geographic Discovery books. They're fantastic. But now a memoir. Uh, why this and why now? Well, you know, a bunch of reasons. Uh, Quite honestly, I've, as you said, I've written a lot of books. I did a, what I, I thought was an earlier version 
of my my memoirs uh, for the Princeton Press called Explorations and I rem- uh, Internal Darkness. And in the book Eternal Darkness, it got wonderful reviews from the New York Times, which you're always nervous about. But they said we didn't learn a thing about the person. And I've always been a pretty private person. I think explorers are sort of born to be private people. And so I thought, you know, here I am. I just turned 79. I know rumors of my death are greatly exaggerated, <laughs> but uh, I felt it was time. And, and, and pivoting on that same point, being an army officer during Vietnam and a naval officer during the Cold War, being a Cub Scout, Boy Scout, on my honor, I'll do my best to do my duty to God and my country. I was always told, tell the truth. And as you know, I had to fib about the discovery of the Titanic that it was a top secret mission I was on, but I couldn't tell the truth. And so the Navy finally declassified that mission. And I was, I saw in this autobiography, the opportunity to tell the truth. And another thing that entered my life at about that time was learning that I'm dyslexic. You know, I'm, like I say, I'm 79 and I don't think the word was around when I was born in Wichita, Kansas, where all oceanographers come from. And I remember struggling with reading and my mom said, well, when we moved from Kansas, you missed your phonics teaching. And I just blew it off, said, okay, I guess I, I didn't get that. But then my daughter was diagnosed with dyslexia when I was 62 and I was driving to the Interspace Center at University of Rhode Island and I was hearing an interview about, uh, from two authors who are world's experts in dyslexia, Dr. Brock and Fernetti Eide, and they were talking about their book, The Dyslexic Advantage. And I have never heard advantage and dyslexia in the same phrase. So I came home, got the book, had it sent to me immediately, and I, you know, being dyslexic, it was a, I had to read and read and read. I didn't put it down. I don't think I slept for 30 some hour, whatever it took to read the book. And tears are running down my face uh, because for the first time I was, my, my, I was having myself explained to me. I was learning who I was for the first time. And it was quite an amazing experience and knowing that 20% of the population is dyslexic, I wanted to reach out to my fellow comrades in arms who have had to go through a system where the rules were written against us. And we survived the educational system. And I, I wanted to do something about it. So the book, as you know, uh, goes into my dyslexia, my discovery of it, and how I happened to just go down the right road in life. Wow. Well, that's a compelling story. And, you know, I, I know you quite well and I've known you over a decade really closely. And and I found so much in this book that was just compelling. And and I, I, as we talked about earlier, it, it is those, those sort of personal vulnerabilities that draw people in, especially to someone of your stature and, and uh, history. And, uh, and so I, and actually, that's a common theme with great people. I know that of overcoming advantage in a way that focuses them as uh, would not have happened otherwise. Um, and I liked a lot of things about your history, which I never knew about your older brother. You you felt was a, like a smarter and the smartest human being I ever met in my life was my older brother, Phi Beta Kappa, particle physics, Berkeley, the hardest major you could take, greasing through it. And then I would follow him two years later, not to Berkeley. I wasn't going to go there. Uh, I 
would go to my t science teacher and say, oh, you're Richard's brother. You must be, no, I guess you're not so smart. And to be not being able to live up to my brother. And that, that can really nail you and your sense of self-esteem and all of that. And then to just take it on as a battle, which is what I did because I'm a fighter, you know. I, I know this. <laughs> and I, was trained, I was trained as a combat infantry officer. And right. so I'm a fighter and I decided, well, I'm going to fight back. And I just didn't give up. I just kept going. There are some great lessons in this book just about that, about persistence. And I was, uh, I'm also impressed with the way, as you said, you pivoted, whereas Richard might have been better in, in the books. You have a, a really, and I've seen you in action, a superb ability to sort of understand things in space and time. And, and that's why you, you were able to take and get a PhD in geology because nothing demands that more than, than that. And, uh, and then also uh, managing these complex ocean technology operations um, so really well done there. Uh, is that is that is that an accurate? Yeah, depiction? I, I simply moved away from pain <laughs> and into a field that was taking advantage of my skills as a dyslexic, and that was really the the end. You know, I'm working in total darkness. You've been in my command center. There's about forty monitors feeding you information, and you know, I always stand in the middle of that command center, suck it all in, and create an image in my mind that I can't see with my eyes. And that's my skill. And I'm able to do close order drill in total darkness. And and that's what got me where I got to. Yeah, and there's some other things I was really surprised at. You talked about going to UC Santa Barbara and you said your first year in organic chemistry, you got a D and in differential equations, I believe. Is that is that right? That's correct. Well, there's my junior years on those, but I, I, and I had A's in my A's in chemistry, A's in math all my life. And then I went on my sword and I, I wasn't for lack of trying. And I, and it wasn't until I began reading the seminal research on dyslexias that's, that tells them they're going to go on their sword on those because it's more word involved, more explanatory involved than my skills as a mathematician. I, you know, I had a quadruple major, math, physics, and with minors in chemistry and geology. I mean, uh, my majors were chemistry and geology. My minors were in math and physics. So I had to take the core courses for all four physical sciences. And I was doing great until I hit those two classes and went right on my sword. And it cost me, I didn't get to go to scripts like you. <laughs> well, there's a lot to talk about there, but I just want to highlight one thing. I, this is, you played Arthur Ashe in tennis. Is that correct? I beat Arthur Ashe in tennis. <laughs> <laughs> I was a doggone good tennis player. And we had a game when I was the summering at UCLA. There was a summer program and I was at UC Santa Barbara and we met on the courts and I beat him. How about that? Well, you know, your 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 physical fitness obviously came through it. And probably I, I saw that you were a leader in your ROTC class at Santa Barbara Army ROTC. Is that right? Yeah, I was a, a top cadet for two years. And then I was only deputy brigade commander. I missed out on brigade commander, but I got close. <laughs> well, you, you had some other things going on. And as we talked about now, this is fun to me because you and I kind of had like, we're sort of intertwined in our past. You went and you met with Roger Ravel at Scripps when you were a senior in high school. Is, is that right? 
my father knew him because he was with North American Aviation and working with classified programs. And he, he, he knew I wanted to go to Scripps. I grew up next to Scripps. I, I got a summer scholarship because of that. I went and saw Roger Revell. And then I got a summer scholarship the summer of 1959 and went to sea on my first oceanographic cruise and got rescued by the Coast Guard. I thought that was cool. Uh, but yes, and when I talked to, to Dr. Ravel, uh, I said, how come I prepare myself? And he says, well, you want to get a broad base just in the physical sciences. And so that's why I did a quadruple major. I figure I'll cover that base. <laughs> Well, I thought this is interesting about you and I. So you went and you interviewed to get into Scripps, which was this goal of yours for a time. And like like mine was when I grew up in Southern California, uh, we both had this in common. And uh, and uh, what, what happened there when you were interviewed with Fred Spies, one of these renowned marine physical lab scientists? And a, and a background in the Navy. And uh, uh, I didn't cut it. Those D's killed me. I mean, you don't go into grad school with two D's, you know, and they they were boom. It just killed me. What was really poetic justice was years later, he offered me a position in the applied physics labs at Scripps and I turned him down. I, I saw that. Actually, we might as well. I don't want to. We're going to go a lot of territory here. But he also, when you applied for tenureship, you were worried because he was on your committee. Isn't that correct? Oh, yeah. I thought I was a dead man. I thought. When, when, when he was on my tenure committee, I, I ran off to Stanford to hide through that horrible process, which takes a year, as you know. And at Woods Hole, which is a Woods Hole MIT program, it was 80% mortality rate from PhD to tenure at, at Woods Hole. And I just thought I was dead. And, you know, it came when they got around to him because I knew the chief examiner who happened to have been the assistant chief of uh, uh, Assistant Secretary of the Navy for R&D, which is uh, Dr. Robert Morse, went on to become the Dean of the Education at Woods Hole. Was on, he was chairman of my, uh, my committee for tenure, and he got to speak. Oh, he's, a, you know, he's always out there writing with National Geographic and blah, 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 blah. And he was hammering me. And then, then, he, then Dr. Morse said, if he was at Scripps, would you give him tenure? And he said, yes, oh. I love that story because I think the word you used or he used was publicity hound. Is that correct? Yeah, then I was just a Hollywood guy because I did all these things with National Geographic, uh, which uh, you know, I always felt you should pay, you know, tell the taxpayer what you're doing. And Geographic has always been a great spokesperson for our work, showcasing it to the American people. I'm, you know, I'm, as you know, I'm 13th generation American, but the first to go to college with my brother and get degrees. And both of us got PhDs. So I feel a, a responsibility to the common person. And when, as you know, oceanography is a ward of the state. It's it's a luxury of wealthy nations. And I felt you got to tell the taxpayer what you're doing. And I've always felt that if you you can't tell a middle school kid what you're doing, then you don't know what you're doing. And so I've always been big on educational outreach. I, I think that's great. We'll we'll talk more on that. But you're right. In fact, so many more people know the ocean because of you. And but and just to kind of complete that about. Dr. Fred Spies. So when I went to Scripps, I also was rejected. However, Fred Spies, one of his students, when he was uh, working there, he f saw my my uh, my application and he and he knew that I was a naval officer and I was basically free labor. <laughs> and he convinced Fred to to put me keep me in. So they actually turned the rejection around. And then that, thus our paths diverged. And I went to Scripps. You were at MIT. I was a little bit behind you, of course, Woods Hole. 
And, uh, and there was a, the commonalities I thought were just a lot of fun. Well, we have a lot in we have a lot in common. I think that's why we enjoy one another's company. And uh, no, uh, again, I don't think we take ourselves that serious. I think that's important. Uh, I think we 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 do serious things, but I don't want to bother people by you know trying to act like I'm some something different from everybody else. So uh, I think you're very much the common person in that regard as well. Well, thank you, Bob. I, I, there, you have many really uh, powerful themes in this book, and, and one is on leadership. It just comes throughout, and that aspect of being uh, humble is so, so key, and especially in today's leadership where it's, I think, more uh, less common. But, uh, but here's something I do not have in common with you. No one ever called me the white tornado when I was in my summer whites. Tell, well, tell us about a, that. Well, you know, a common bedfellow of dyslexia is ADHD, and and as you know in the book, my the story of my mom, where you know I kept vanishing over the fence when I was a child and showing up at the at the at the market, and they kept calling, and 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 then she finally figured out how I was scaling over the fence through my fingers through the knot holes, and she then was waiting for me the next time on the other side, and then she put me. We had a dog named Inky. And uh, the dog was on one of those clothesline runners. So she put me on a clothesline runner with Inky. And I remember telling her just like a puppy dog. But I, I needed to, to master uh, and har- harness my energy. My children, uh, most of them have, are, are, are ADHD. And my son, Dougie, I put on when he was growing up, dealing with all the issues I dealt with. At least he had a, a soulmate. And I had on the mirror when he was brushing his teeth in the morning before going to school, it said, my body is like a race car. And when I learn how to drive it, I'm going to win lots of races. So my challenge has been, how do I take this boundless energy and enthusiasm and channel it in a productive way? And that's been a lot of fun. I, I, I also have coping mechanisms to calm me down. Mine is to sit down and do a thousand-piece puzzle where, where I don't know what it is. And, and I have this rhythm I've established where when I, I get so excited about what I'm doing, I, I need to calm down. And I so uh, 10 feet away, in fact, when you come out on the Nautilus, you'll find a big puzzle board there. And I sit down and I do puzzles. And my wife makes sure I have an endless supply where I don't know what they are. But to show you how insidious she can be. So she brings me this puzzle one day and it's a thousand pieces. I pour it out on my puzzle table, which is like a lazy Susan. I can spin it around and it has no borders. So normally you start with the borders. So first place, I don't know what it is. There's no picture. It has no borders. And then it had pieces that went nowhere. They were useless pieces, and it had holes in the puzzle that couldn't be filled. And the coup de gras was every piece was the same shade of blue. Oh. It, was, it was a blue puzzle. The whole puzzle was blue, and I got it done. I did it. Well, the, the, so for the readers, quickly, I, when I said white tornado, this was the the nickname that Bob had when he first came to Woods Hole Oceanographic Institution because he would be wearing his summer whites and his excitement was generated the description, I think. There was a guy running the uh, Alvin program named Broderick. He was uh, George Broderick. He was a cop from a diesel submarine. So he'd been chief of the boat. And, you know, here's this, this ensign that's spinning around like a dervish. And he's one that would say, yeah, you know, he's the one that coined me the white tornado. 
Love the term. And I, I get it after having seen you. Uh, well, there's so much to cover and I'm not going to be a spoiler in this podcast. I just want to make people interested in, in which they undoubtedly will be. Uh, and you know, one of the things, so you, Barbara is your wife and, who buys you these puzzles and you dedicated this to her. Yes. Um, what, she's what, what, my other half. Well, tell us about her. Well, Barbara, you know, uh, my spiritual guru is Joseph Campbell, who wrote the book, The Power of Myth. And and in there, he talks about finding your other half. See, my my view of, of a relationship is your mate sees the world through one eye. You see it through another eye. And you can't say one eye is better than the other. They're not. They see the world differently. And so what you do as you grow up and you begin to know yourself, you learn how you see the world through your eye. But when you find your mate that sees it through a different perspective, I can remember when I look at something and I'll say to Barbara, what do you see? And she describes that. I don't even see what you're seeing. But through her eye, through the shared experience, you get binocular vision and you see in 3D. So I'm always curious what she sees so that I can better understand the true world, which is in 3D. Yes, I've seen that too. And that's fantastic. You know, and, and one of the projects that you detailed in this that I thought is really uh, interesting and, and powerful because of its scientific credibility and the and the nature of its discovery was project famous that you it was, was your PhD work. And, and this really led up to establishing your credibility to have the Secretary of the Navy agree on your Titanic search. Could you talk a little bit about the discoveries made that no one had known yet about in project famous? Well, you know, again, I got my I was I was in I started out as an army infantry officer, went off to delay to call to active duty at USC. And then they moved me into the Navy and shipped me to Woods Hole as a, a freshly minted ensign and assigned me to the Alvin program, which was like my dream. And so uh, the Alvin was a toy, was not being well received by the academic community. Uh, they thought it was just a silly little toy. And yet uh, I was lucky to, I'm uh, very lucky in a lot of things. And I was lucky to be a graduate student in the earth sciences when the theory of plate tectonics came along in the late 50s, early 60s, built upon Alfred Wegener's concept of continental drift. And there was quite a argument going on within the earth sciences about whether plate tectonics was true or not. But uh, the National Academy held a workshop uh, uh, Harry Hess, who we, we both know was a naval officer during World War II uh, and one of the godfathers of plate tectonics, was at Princeton University. And he had a uh, convinced the National Academy to hold a workshop and to bring in the players, both pro and con. And I remember one of the big con, you know, was, was whether Alvin could do anything was Frank Press, who was at MIT, later went on to become uh, as you know, a, a science advisor to President Carter. And then then one of the giants in the field at the time was Maurice Ewing, who founded Lamont Doherty Geological Observatory. And these were tough characters. So they sent, the, and if you know anything about the, the lecture pits at Princeton, they're like an operating room, it's a pit. I mean, if, you, if you mistakenly fall, you'll die clapping down it because it's really steeped. And so you imagine I hadn't, I was just finishing my PhD and I'm in this pit. I'm David with the lions and I'm looking up at the gods of marine sciences. 
and giving a presentation because I was doing my PhD on using Alvin as a Jeep, a, a field geologist. I was a field geologist. And so I remember talking about what I was doing with my PhD thesis and Frank Press stood up, you know, just powering and said, tell me one thing um, submersible has ever done in deep sea science. Well, the answer was it hadn't, it had just got going. And I was fumbling to answer and Bruce Leyendijk, who was a student of species, finished his PhD, stood up and he's a, he, he no, nothing scared Bruce. And he said, don't blame it on the submersible, we've never tried. And he sat back down. But then that night, when we were finishing up the recommendations to go out to the Mid-Atlantic Ridge, what became famous, French-American Mid-Ocean Undersea Study, to test in the field the theory of plate tectonics on the ground, I had across from me Maurice Schewing, and again, a tough guy. And he's, we'd all had a few. And I remember him looking over at me and he said, listen, kid, we're going to let you try. But if you fail, we're going to Alvin into a million titanium paper clips. And he threw down the gauntlet as, as you know, we went on and Project Famous was a seminal discovery that gave ground truthing to the theory of plate tectonics. So yeah, and then that was followed shortly thereafter with our discovery of hydrothermal vents on the Galapagos Rift. So we, we threw out the geology textbook with famous, we threw out the biology textbook with the discovery of chemosynthetic life forms on the Galapagos Rift. And then we threw out the chemistry textbook when we discovered black smokers on the East Pacific rise that showed that the entire volume of the world's oceans is going inside the planet and out along this great mountain range. So that was 10 years of just smoking, smoking along. And fortunately that led up to my tenure uh, occasion, which I, I dodged the bullet and they, I got my tenure. Well, I'll tell you, Bob, I, I forgive me for not having an appreciation for the, your scientific uh, discovery and credentials, because when I read that, I couldn't believe it. You know, everybody nowadays takes for granted plate tectonics, rifts, trenches, hydrothermal vents. These are discoveries you made. And I love the term you used. You said by rewriting the marine geology, biology, and chemistry text, it was an unprecedented trifecta. So great. I uh, encourage everybody to get this book just to read that in itself. As you know how the book opens, uh, a little, I'll tease a little, it's my mom. Because when I came back from the Titanic, it was a feeding frenzy. I mean, it was like, wow. Uh, I had to go on Ge National Geographic. I didn't get to go home. I had to go on the Today Show, the Tonight Show, the Day After Tomorrow Show, the show we haven't thought of yet show. And I did this blitz over... 24 hours and I came home and the phone rang and it was my mom, my mom, Wichita, Kansas. And she said, son, your ma, your dad and your sister and I watched you on all the shows. The neighbors are calling, but you know, it's too bad you found that rusty old boat. And I, and moms are always right. And I said, mom, why are, are you saying that? Well, you're a great scientist. You've done a phenomenal research. And she was a smart woman just because she became a housewife in, in 1942. She was on uh, honors in her high school class, but she, you know, back then she raised a family. And uh, she, she knew the significance of my science. And she said, yep, they're, 
They've written your obituary, son. The man who found the Titanic died today. <laughs> yes, but I love that your mom knew there was so much more. And it was, I think your opening was just perfect. And, you know, there's some great humor in this book. Uh, like you, you, you've talked to me about this when you were trying to get Navy support to go on the Titanic and search for Thresher and Scorpion. And you had to, your opening meeting with Vice Admiral Thunman. Uh, that was a Rickover Rick over initiation. You got you to tell that for us, please. Well, you know, uh, uh, what, what people didn't know was there was a secret society called the, the Committee to Rearrange the Deck Furniture of the Titanic, chaired by John Lehman, who was Secretary of the Navy. Uh, and uh, he and I knew one another. I'd taken him down in Alvin. And he was a, the youngest secretary of the Navy, and, and we were kindred spirits. And uh, we had this secret society, which included Walter Cronkite and a few other crazy people. And what I didn't know was that Lehman was the one that went to President Reagan and convinced him to, to back the Titanic as a cover. I didn't know that at the time. And so what was really interesting was uh, uh, when we found the Titanic, uh, the, the, uh, he was the one that I, I called initially to tell him we'd found the Titanic. Uh, but yes, it was, uh, it was a seminal discovery, but, but what was really interesting about it was the reaction that children had to it. I had 16,000 letters waiting for me when I came back, all wanting to do what I do. And that's led to my children's program, the Jason Project. Uh, and then we had all sorts of adventures with that when, uh, when we uh, lost the vehicles. And, I mean, just one adventure after another uh, dealing with the world we live in, which is, you know, it, it wants to bite you. And we were able to overcome so many different calamities and, and add humor to it all. And certainly... Um, uh, some of the funny things I did was when National Geographic wanted to go to look for the Loch Ness Monster. I thought that was sort of funny. I never uh, knew that about you. That was a good story as well. That was a great story because, you know, I, I said, you got to be kidding. And they said, no, 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 we want to do a story on it. And I, and I said, well, what do you want me to do? Well, help us, help us debunk it or whatever. And so I, I said, all right, well, they fly me over to Scotland for the summer on their nickel and put me up in a castle. Oh, all right, I'll do that. And the idea was that when you take on these legends, you know, whether it's a biblical flood, which we talk about in the book, whether it's Atlantis or all of this stuff, if it's true, it obeys the laws of physics. So if, they, if it's true, these legendary things, then they obey all the other rules that everyone else plays. So I said, okay, let's take on the Loch Ness Monster. First setting in the 1500s. Well, these things don't live forever, so they had to die and be replaced. And to have a critical population of any creature, like whales or whatever, you can't drop below 25. So you need at least 25 Loch Ness Monsters alive at any one time. Okay. And then they die. Okay. What happens to the dead moms, dads, and grandparents? Well, they're going to fall to the bottom of the lock. Well, let's see. 
Look at the lock. The lock's a thousand feet deep. It was totally glaciated uh, during the ice age. So it doesn't, A, have a plesiosaur, but B, it doesn't have any sediments. So it's barren rock. So that means the bones would land on the bottom of the lock. Okay. It's fresh water. So the bones are not going to be uh, evaporated. I mean, uh, dissolved. Uh, they're not below the calcium carbonate compensation depth. So the whale's dead bodies, I mean, the monster's dead bodies still should still be there. So I said, well, then let's bring in a trawler and trawl the entire length of Loch Ness for seven miles. And we should be bringing up the dead parents and grandparents and great grandparents. And naturally we didn't. We brought up a lot of clinkers, which told us we were bringing up old things. Clinkers were in the age of coal when they were had steam engines out on the lock. And as you know, coal has impurities. And so they shovel it out and throw them overboard. It's like melted lead or something. We brought up tons of clinkers. So it meant we were way back into time, but nary a bone. So, wow. yeah. Well, that's so, so something you have not found, and that's an important non-discovery. You can't find things you can't find, uh, you know, that don't exist. I remember as we were leaving, uh, we went back up to, along the lock, they have these vendors selling Nessie burgers. They have these, you know, these vendors. And I remember we stopped there a lot of times, and the vendor would say, have you found Nessie yet? And I said, nope, not yet. And we would go back my last time to have a hamburger. He said, well, I hope... I'm so glad that you didn't find it, but I was hoping you would. And I said, here's the deal. Don't worry. You can never prove something doesn't exist if it doesn't exist. <laughs> I love that. I recall that. Uh, you, that's verbatim in your book. And uh, so there's a wonderful middle section of this book where you just go all over the place. You're in the Med, you're in the Black Sea. You find the Yorktown out in the Pacific, PT-109 in the Solomons. I mean, and you, you interacted with a number of people I'm, I'm good friends with. If you recall, on the Yorktown, you had a, a University of Hawaii scientist named Karen Sender who picked the yeah. spot. She was the one that saw that rice grain along with uh, Bruce Applegate. Uh, yeah, Hawaii was critically... With their sonar system as a real gamble, I was really rolling the dice because it, you know, range versus resolution. I wanted, it was a huge search area. I didn't have the resources to pay scripts to come in with this, uh, with deep toe and mow the lawn. It was just too much grass to grow, uh, to mow. And so I gambled on a sonar that had a much broader swath width towed just below the surface in 17,000 feet of water. And I had to run parallel to the Yorktown. So it had to be intact and I had to run parallel to it and it would look like a rice grain embedded in bottom terrain. And fortunately it was laying out in a muddy area and there was the rice grain and I hit it at just the right aperture and bingo. Got it. Love it. I, yeah. And you uh, talked about the mud balls being evidence of some he something heavy metal hitting the yeah, bottom. Cool. Yeah. When we were coming in with the ATV, after we found the target, we had a target. We were then diving on it with uh, the Subdev Group 1's ATV, a ton of, an ROV that could get down to 20,000 feet. And we were coming in and we picked up this monster on our sonar. But then we're closing, and then I said, hey, look, there's mud balls. And they went, what, what, what are mud balls? And I said, oh, that's right. You've never seen a mud ball. Well, I saw them when I was closing in on the Titanic because the Titanic had fallen uh, 12,000 feet. Remember, it was, you know, it was 
this gigantic piece of metal smashed into the bottom of the ocean and threw up mud, just like you throw a rock in a mud mud bath. And the mud, even though it's moving through water and slowly being torn apart, it was big enough mud balls to, for them to survive. And it was like splatter. And I said, splatter, the Yorktowns were right over there. Uh. And, and it was. That's fantastic. You know, uh, one of the things that uh, I loved you profiling in this book was the beginning of NOAA's program for ocean exploration and research. Which <laughs> yeah, the, the last that was four, a struggle. Well, the last four years, we, we worked to grow the program uh, modestly. We didn't have a lot of funding, but we tried to grow it. We did grow it, and we established this national plan and a national strategy for ocean mapping, exploration, and and characterization, and this is still continuing. You just met with the NOAA administrator, Rick Spinrad, and he's he's moving forward with that. And this is all something that you started uh, in around the 2000 timeframe with Senator Hollings. Uh, can you share just a bit about that and how you got the NOAA Okeanos Explorer ship funded? Well, Hollings was a, a his loved, loved Jacques Cousteau. He was a Jacques Cousteau fanatic and as you know, he helped create NOAA in the first place. And I would go visit him and he'd always say, you know, you're the new Jacques Cousteau. And I'd say that, whatever, you know, and he was sweet. And he said, so how can I help? And I said, we need to, to you know, I'd served on the president's commission under Clinton uh, on the panel on ocean exploration that made the re recommendation to create an office of ocean exploration which went forward under uh, uh, Clinton, but then it was handed off to, to President Bush and he created the President's Commission on Ocean Policy and I served on that as well. I was the only oceanographer on that commission and I was, it was, we, was called the Watkins Commission from Admiral Watkins who was CNO, by the way, when I found the Titanic and read me the riot act, but anyway, uh, he would always refer to me as Commander Ballard, and I say yes, Admiral, yes, sir. And anyway, uh, he he uh, uh, that commission also wrecked. So I had two cong two acts of of of, of Congress uh, uh, under two different presidents of of both parties. So I had a Democratic panel recommending it, and a and a Republican commission recommending it, and it was that we needed to have not only an ocean exploration program, which at the time was $4 million, we needed to grow it to $76 million. We're not there yet, but we're more than halfway. And that we needed dedicated ships of exploration. And so uh, Admiral Ladenbacher, as you know, was one of your predecessors. And I, he wasn't terribly keen on having a dedicated NOAA ship of exploration but so I naturally went to Congress. So I did all my work on the Hill, both in the House and the Senate. And I went to Hollings. And then uh, he, as you know, retired. His wife had ill health. And uh, Senator Dodd, who's I'm based in Connecticut. I married my wife's from Connecticut. So there was no confusion where I was going to live. And I live in Connecticut. And so my Congress, my senator was Senator Chris Dodd and Joe Lieberman. But Chris Dodd came to me and he said, how can I just fill a small part of Senator Hollings' shoe? 
and I said, well, we need we need dedicated ships of exploration. We can't just we're gonna we're gonna boldly go where no one has gone before. So by definition, we don't have a lot of ships out there. We need a ship that's committed to this project. And he said, well, let's do this. Let me send you to, to Senator Inouye, who is his Democratic uh, counterpart in, in uh, appropriations. And I went to him and uh, told him what I wanted to do. And he said, well, A, we gotta, we'll do this with the Department of Defense because they have all the money. And so let's get a ship of theirs and we'll move it over to NOAA. But the Republicans control the appropriations now control the Senate. So I want you to go and talk to my friend. And they were very close in a way. And, and Ted Stevens of Alaska, maybe because they were the outlaws of Alaska and Hawaii, the last two states, but they had a tremendous camaraderie that cut across the political uh, nonsense we see. And he said, I I'm going to set up a meeting with Senator Dodd. I mean, Senator uh, Stevens. And so I went home, he said a phone call, and I went back up and I go into his office and it was really funny, you know, he has this uh, walrus bone <laughs> that he uses to gavel the table when he wants a meeting. He says, so tell me about this ship you want. And I told him what, you know, about how we needed to explore the new America, the 50% of our nation that lies beneath the sea, that we have better maps of Mars than half the United States of America. And on I went and he said, all right, we'll get a ship, we'll transfer it over. And well, how much do you need to convert it? And I said, about 20 million. We gave us 18. Uh, and then he said, and I want you to go find me a bunch of fish. <laughs> and, and, and then, as you know, it all played out. And online came the Okeanos Explorer, which is at sea this very minute, exploring, as is the Nautilus. So I then came on with a second ship uh, because we needed more than one. It's a big puddle out there. And so the Nautilus is working in the Pacific right this minute, and the Okeanos is working in the Atlantic, and we both have been working in the Gulf of Mexico, and so we pulled it off, but thanks to Congress. And you, and really, this this is a program I just absolutely loved and was a champion for, and we have this, this program of NOAA's and the ship Okeanos Explorer. Uh, the program funds other ships like Bob's uh, Nautilus and several like the, the Schmitz um, ship, the, the Falcor, and it really, just it's, there are new discoveries every day. In fact, last year we discovered several new seamounts, uh, 25 new marine species, uh, an 80-mile-long coral reef that no one even knew about in the Atlantic, and uh, and on and on. It's just there's so much. To, we have mapped the surface of the Moon and Mars to a higher resolution than we know the, our own seafloor um, in our U.S. exclusive economic zone. So. Thank you, Bob. Let's talk a little bit now about uh, the Nautilus and what she's been doing over the last two weeks, because it's really quite a remarkable story. Well, as you know, uh, I have to run a business. It's a nonprofit called the Ocean Exploration Trust, but NOAA doesn't fully fund my ship. So I have to find other business. And one of the loyal customers of my my enterprise is Ocean Network Canada, which is, as you know, off the coast of Vancouver, British Columbia, the uh, 
Juan de Fuca plate is subducting beneath the North American plate. And subduction zones are extremely dangerous because they get locked, the plates get locked up. And then when they go, they generate a massive earthquake that creates a massive tsunami, as we saw witness to in Japan, as we saw witness to in, in Indonesia and the Indian Ocean, where hundreds of thousands of people died. So Canada has put an underwater, I think of the Dewey warning system, they put an underwater uh, network of seismographs and other devices to, to monitor the plate and to let them know when it pops so they can give a warning to their citizens, about a half an hour warning that that's popped and a bad guy is on its way. So we've been working with them for ever since we entered the Pacific in 19, uh, 2015. And so we were out there working with a cable layer just a few weeks ago. We were near the end of our mission of wiring it up and installing new sensors and all of that. We were standing off and all of a sudden the screens in our command center went black and, and the tension on the cable went to zero. Uh oh, bad. We had just lost all of our vehicles. And there I, I was, you know, all, you know, your stomach sinks to the bottom of your body. I mean, it was just awful. And uh, fortunately, uh, the community rallied. And my old group at Woods Hole that I had created, the Deep Submergence Laboratory, when I built the Jason vehicle, was working just 11 hours south of us on a similar network off of state of Washington with the University of uh, UW with their ship, the Thompson. And I called him and I said, I, 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 I had a funny thing happen on the way to work today. <laughs> and we rallied, came together, and we converged back on the spot and did a breathtaking recovery of both vehicles that was just a, a you know, too bad it's not in the book, <laughs> but we'll be releasing a beautiful document. National Geographic is editing a wonderful version of our miraculous recovery of getting our vehicles back on deck from 7,000 feet down. And they're now on their way home to, I'll be flying out in a couple days as we get ready to go back to sea with our vehicles. Your adventures never stop, Bob. How do you do it? Well, you know, I read the wrong definition in Webster's Dictionary of retiring. And I read the one that said, when you halfway through the Indianapolis 500, the race car drivers, the white tornadoes, go into the pit and get a new set of tires, and it's called retiring. And so with this new program with NOAA, we've been funded, as you know, for five years, more than likely 10 years, to conduct the second Lewis and Clark expedition, although we've modified the name from Lewis and Clark since 55% of our core, his was the core of discovery, ours the core of exploration, but 55% of our core are women in positionships of leadership and authority. Allison Fundus is running the show. She did, she directed that miraculous recovery. And so we're calling it the Lois and Clark expedition. I love, I love that too, Bob. You know, you're, you, we must be reading each other's mind because I, I wrote about 10 pages of notes and I have this one on women empowerment and your, your statistic that you mentioned about 55% of the core being women. Uh, there's a great quote in your, in the early part of your book, which I also wrote down and you said, 
in our family, I was always more aligned with the women than the men. And, and you talked about your mom and being close to her and her being your, your champion. And, uh, and so I thought that's a, a lovely way to uh, pass that on to the next generation. Well, it is. And, and uh, why, you know, that wonderful ad years ago, why waste a mind? I mean, why waste not only people of color's minds or women's minds? I'm adding to that. Why waste a dyslexic mind? <laughs> well, you have not <laughs> wasted any time or effort here. Uh, so I want to just encourage everybody to uh, get into this book. It is called Into the Deep, a memoir from the man who found the Titanic by Dr. Robert Ballard, uh, who has been just this fantastic guest today. And Bob, we're coming up on the close here, and, and I don't want to be too constrained. Uh, I'd like to just ask you, what do you have for our audience and our listeners out there? What else would you like to uh, say to them that uh, shortly uh, before they get their hands on this fantastic text? Well, I think they need to know that we're all on a journey, and this is a journey I've been on. And as Joseph Campbell said, life is the act of becoming one never arrives. That is really nicely said. You, you have a number of really uh, fantastic uh, elements in here. Uh, one of one, one of the themes I saw was this great cross collaboration between Navy science and exploration. Uh, I mentioned women empowerment. I mentioned humor. You have a lot there. There was a, a joke that you uh, uh, gave at the first dinner to your uh, now your wife Barbara's uh, mother. Uh, <laughs> That was that was bold, I must say. <laughs> well, I'm going to just encourage everybody to get the book and and hint it's about an orgy, uh, and, and we'll leave it there. Uh, <laughs> that was a bold act on my part, but I I was a kid from Kansas meeting a a wonderful lady from Connecticut, and I just wanted her to know who was courting her daughter. Oh, she got an earful. Well, that's fantastic, and it worked out. You know, I, I love. Yeah, there, uh, was no, there was no orgy. That's <laughs> <laughs> good to hear. And you know, I, I really liked the the leadership lessons in this book. Uh, you, you talked about your from your experience as an Army ROTC uh, a cadet and uh, your rejection by Scripps, like me, but I, I I somehow got accepted. You had to pick yourself back up, and then that led you to Woods Hole, and and the rest is history, and continues to be made. I really enjoyed what you talked about in terms of getting the Navy to agree on Titanic and this uh, Bruce Landyke who spoke up for you. And, and, and you said, I love him to this day. I Gosh. love him to this day. I, I love the story of people you know, going out on a limb and backing up these you know, leaders, backing up the, the ones under them like you were, uh, th these mentors of you who, who saw that vision that you had and, and carried you. And that, that's kind of how I felt in my career. I've had so many people carry me. So I, is Bruce is Bruce still alive? Absolutely. Oh, yeah. He's younger than I am. Gosh, I love, love, love to meet him. him. Yeah, well, he uh, he was retired from UC Santa Barbara. He, he went on to become a gaucho like myself. And I think he still lives in the Santa Barbara area. But Bruce, yeah. he, he And then Larry Mayer, who's a, another Spies graduate, uh, is one of my dear buddies, and we are always joking about our t our times together. Oh, we share the the common friendship with him. That's great. He's at University of New Hampshire, and a, a major uh, leading figure in the, in the world in ocean mapping. And, and a son who went to the Naval Academy. Oh, okay. That's that's right. I Aaron Aaron Mayer. That's correct. Yeah, two tours of Afghanistan. Very impressive. Great, great guy. Uh, yes. 
And then, uh, you know, one of the things also in your book I liked a lot is that uh, you, in terms of your leadership example, you talked about never showing doubt to the people you were leading. You said never blink. Can you explain that a little bit? Well, I, it, it reminds me, you know, as an Army officer trained, I naturally studied, uh, you know, the art of combat. And I'll never forget the story of what was called the Battle of Bull Run. It later became the, the first Battle of Manassas when they went back. But the, when, when the Union Army and the Confederate Army met just south of Washington, D.C., and there was a moment in the battle when one of the top uh, generals of the Confederacy was killed and his, his entire uh, army was in disarray. And as he was lying on the battlefield dying, he said to his other officers, rally around, Cap uh, rally around Jackson's banner. He's standing there like a stone wall. And that's how Stonewall Jackson got his name because he didn't blink. He stood there like a stone wall. And we've, we've seen it in the Battle of Saratoga, uh, Saratoga uh, with, uh, with Benedict Arnold uh, uh, rallying the troops, rolling up Burgoyne's right flank uh, were, were, were Hessians and carrying the day. You're taught you may be scared to death, but don't show it because they're going to look to their leader and they don't want to see anything but a stone wall. Amen. I know this to be true. Uh, it, hope is something that I see uh, the best leaders show in abundance, and that's what encourages their people to carry on. And the last thing, uh, Bob, I, I want to just kind of go on a, and is that I love that you featured your family throughout this book, uh, the, both your mother and your brother and your sister, uh, and then and then of course your your wife and sons and daughters, your daughter Emily. I love your em Emily's. Uh, not all wanderers are lost, quote. <laughs> Correct. It's a pretty apt description of yourself. And uh, just anything, any comments you want to make about your family before we close? Well, like I say, it's all about family. Uh, you know, you're not alone. Uh, you need to have those people who will stand by you. Blood is thicker than water. And uh, when I lost my first son in a car accident, short of 21, boy, did I, and I had people rally, family rally around me and walk me through that, as well as strangers who came to my side. So yeah, I think we all have these storms in life, but I think the good news is they always go away and you just row through it. Uh, it's like uh, listening to the sirens calling you onto the rocks as you traverse the Bosporus, you just soldier on. Mm. Well said, Bob. And so for people who are interested, of course, the discovery of the Titanic, which is a central piece of Dr. Ballard's career, uh, there's much, much more and of discovery and humanity, which uh, I am just uh, had such a great time reading. I encourage everybody to also get this National Geographic published book called Into the Deep, by Dr. Robert Ballard. And Bob, uh, just before I close, I want to say thank you so much. And I'm looking forward to getting underway with you again soon. Well, thank you for having me, Admiral. And let's uh, get together when we're over in Hawaii next year. I will see you then. Uh, aloha and mahalo. Yes, mahalo anuiloha. <laughs> Perfect way to end this special episode of the American Blue Economy podcast. 
We heard firsthand from the world's most widely accomplished ocean explorer, Dr. Robert Ballard. We traveled the globe and the depths virtually, and we uncovered the powerful personal elements behind the many headlines generated by this remarkable discoverer of the Titanic. I want to thank our sponsors, the American Shoreline Podcast Network and Coastal News Today. And please join us for our next episode of the American Blue Economy Podcast. We'll again focus on ocean mapping, exploration, and characterization. And one of our guests will be Dr. Ballard's, Ballard's Chief Operating Officer, Allison Fundus of the Ocean Exploration Trust. Uh, we'll also have several other ocean explorers who have all followed in the wake of Dr. Ballard's pioneering work. This is your host, Admiral Tim Gallaudet, CEO of Ocean STL Consulting. Thank you for joining us, shipmates. I look forward to getting underway with you next time. Thank you.